I'm your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Potstirer Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide, and it's not always polite. I recently had the opportunity to engage in a fascinating and enlightening conversation with activist, former pastor, and professor emeritus, Drick Boyd, EDD. Dr. Boyd is the author of the book, Disrupting Whiteness, Talking with White People About Racism. I'm truly excited to share this with you, and I hope that you'll gain as much from the experience as I did, perhaps even more. Thank you for listening. Enjoy. Today, we have a special guest, Drick Boyd, EDD. Dr. Boyd is a professor emeritus of urban and interdisciplinary studies at Eastern University in St. David's, Pennsylvania. His areas of focus are urban theology, race and ethnic relations, leadership, social activism, restorative justice, and popular education. In addition to his career as professor of urban studies, he has also served as an urban youth worker, an American Baptist pastor, and an adult educator. Dr. Boyd has been involved in community-based leadership development in the West Philadelphia area for many years and has sought to build relationships among people who differ based on race, ethnicity, class, religion, and sexual orientation. Dr. Boyd is here to talk a bit about his work and particularly his new book, Disrupting Whiteness, Talking with White People About Racism. Welcome, Dr. Boyd. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. What inspired you to pursue your line of research, in particular, your line of research that led you to writing Disrupting Whiteness? Well, for many years, while I was a professor, I taught a course on race and ethnic relations, and it was a master's level course in our urban studies program. And usually my classes were fairly diverse racially, so it it provided a a really good arena for for discussion about the, the issues that we were facing. And one of the areas that I became concerned about as I continue to teach and work with students was that in an area that I thought I might have something to contribute was in helping white students particularly understand their role in combating racism. And so in 2015, I wrote a book called White Allies in the Struggle for Racial Justice, which was a book that told 17 stories about 18 white people through American history who sought to be Uh, allies for racial justice in their times. So starting with someone like John Woolman in the 1700s, who was a Quaker who went around and tried to convince other Quakers uh, to release their slaves and to abolish slavery, all the way up uh, to the present, looking at someone like Morris Dees, who founded the Southern Poverty Law Center. In 2017, we had the Unite the Right, the neo-Nazi marches in Charlottesville, Virginia, And following that event, I had a number of conversations with students and friends and other people who were saying, I don't know how to talk to my friends. I don't know how to talk to my family members. I don't know how to talk to my white coworkers about these things. I'm very concerned, but I don't know how to talk about them. And and so 
I wrote a series of blogs attempting to sort of address that question about how do we talk to white people in our lives about racism? And eventually those blogs uh, became a book. And the other thing that uh, sort of motivated to me is that there's in recent years, there's been a, a lot of very well written, very well researched, very worthwhile books written about basically what's wrong with white people when it comes to racism and what, what are the issues and what are the struggles and what are the blocks that many white people have. And I kind of felt like, OK, we've, we've defined the problem. Are there ways that we can begin to talk about, OK, what do we do about that? And so that was the other other motivating factor is to really look at, OK, now that we have identified many of the issues that are impacting white people when it comes to dealing with racism in America, what are some things we can do to begin to address that? And so this book is really an attempt to encourage people, particularly white people, but not solely white people, who have white friends, white family members, white coworkers, people in their social networks, to deliberately and consciously and intentionally talk about race in a way that brings that into the conversation uh, and gets people to begin asking questions about their own attitudes and perspectives. That makes total sense. And I have so much, somewhat of a church background myself and both sort of within the church and outside of it. It's sort of been a, a thing for me to want to sort of bridge the gap. Mm-hmm. And so when reading this, that really resonated with some of the things you're talking about. So you mentioned in Disrupting Whiteness that most white people don't see themselves in racial terms. So because they don't tend to encounter disadvantages in various areas of their lives, specifically due to their race, oftentimes they see themselves as normal or the default rather than white as an identity. And one of the first steps towards having a real conversation about race is for white people to begin reflecting and developing their race story. Could you share with the audience a little bit about what you mean by race story and why you feel it's important to know it? Well, actually, uh, in the book, I actually be early on in the book, talk about a little bit my own story and how I grew up in an environment that was uh, very, very white very upper middle class, very white. Uh, and, and so I kind of grew up in this environment where I just assumed, as, a, as you just indicated, that white was just sort of normal. It was just the way things were. And it wasn't until I broke out of that that I began to realize that people were seeing and experiencing the world in entirely different ways than I was simply because of their racial identity and the way they were identified by this society. And I don't think we as white people can talk with any kind of integrity about racism in in anybody else's life or in society in general, unless we have come to terms the way in which race and racism have shaped us. And so when I talk about we need to know our race story, it's, it's really just asking ourselves and reflecting on some very simple questions, you know, like, how do you describe yourself in terms of racial identity? When did you first encounter a person of another race? And what, what were your feelings? What were your thoughts about that? When did you first experience racism, either witnessing it or hearing someone's story? Uh, and and what, what was it that you took from that? And how did that shape you? And 
you know, what kind of messages in your environment, in your family, in your school, in your church were you uh, hearing about race uh, and when you were growing up? And, and what were the stories that were people tell? What were the jokes that people were saying? What was the language that people were using? You know, for instance, when I was growing up on the playground, we used to pick up teams by saying eeny, meeny, miny, mo," catch a N-word by the toe. I mean, it was just part of our language. And we, we, refer, we referred to Jewish people and Japanese people and derogatory terms. It was just part of the way we grew up. And, 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 and you know, even looking at your own family history and, and your ancestors, what was their relationship to Native, Native American people? What was their relationship to African-American people? I remember, remember once having a student who, when we were talking about this originally in, in, in the course, she insisted, you know, that, she, that racism was not at all part of her her, her life. And then later on in the course, she came back and she says, you know, I remember as a little child, my grandfather coming in from being out in, in the evening and hanging up a white sheet. And she had never really connected the fact that her family was deeply involved in propagating racism in a very direct way. And then I, and I think throughout our lives, we, we, we have critical incidents that sort of open our eyes to things that we hadn't seen before. One of the sort of incidents in my life that really kind of shocked me when it happened was I, I went, I grew up in Minnesota, but I went to school in Durham, North Carolina uh, in the 1970s uh, when segregation was still very real in Durham. And I was, I volunteered my first year in school, I was volunteering to do some, some mentoring of, uh, and tutoring of young kids at, at an African-American church. And, and usually there was a professor who drove us from the campus to the church. But uh, one particular evening, he wasn't able to make it. And those of us who were the tutors, we said, oh, it's not that far. We'll just walk. So we walked from the campus and we walked off campus and we were walking on the street and the road continued, but the pavement stopped. And I, and I literally tripped because there was a there was a it was sort of uneven. Wow. And I realized this is what segregation is. We, we just we had just walked into the black community and it was very clear because there was no there was no macadam. There was it was the, the road was there, but uh, the, the macadam stopped. And and so those were the kinds of incidents. And I could just tell story after story of things that just began to wake me up to the reality of racism and the way. It was just sort of a normal part of life that I had just been oblivious to until I began uh, putting myself in situations and being aware of the way in which I was being shaped and had been shaped by white supremacy and by racism throughout my life. And I think that unless white people really take the time to understand the way they have been shaped by racism, they're just going to continue to propagate and perpetuate uh, the, the, the kind of attitudes and actions that demean other people. I really appreciate your ability to self-reflect. And I think one of the things about when you look at your race story, it's like, okay, you're kind of reflecting back and it's like sort of almost like asking the tough questions, especially like when you're removed from it a little bit and you can kind of see some of the, uh, some of the structural things. You know, I think this really resonated with me because as a Black American, I've shared aspects of my race story in different places. For example, in this podcast, in other episodes, I like to tell stories. And 
I've shared aspects of what may be called sort of a race story, but without really thinking about it or really putting it in those terms, because being a black American, it's like, okay, that's my story. Right. Right. I mean, you just, you, you face race every day as, as an African-American because the world just categorizes like you that way. And you're just, yeah. And whites don't, don't encounter that in the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes it's not even necessarily something that in the moment, especially stories of things that have happened when I was younger, I necessarily saw, but then as I got older and I looked back and, you know, I have more of a framework of understanding society and everything. Then it's like, oh, wow. I think of an example. So I grew up in Detroit, but from the time I was two until I was eight, we moved to different places around the country. So when my family and I, like when we moved back to Detroit, we moved to a neighborhood on the outskirts of the city that was predominantly white. Mm. And we were the second black family on the block. And I would say like over the next few years, our neighbors were moving out. Mm -hmm. So like they were moving further out into the suburbs and literally over the next decade, like I saw the neighborhood completely change Mm -hmm. to where by the time I graduated from high school, our neighborhood was just about all black. Mm -hmm. And um, on top of that, a lot of the investment within the neighborhood left. Mm -hmm. So the character of the neighborhood changed and there was a lot that changed there. And and at the time, I it wasn't something I really understood. But then as I've gotten older and I understand like ideas like white flight, it's like, OK, I live this. <laughs> this is something that I saw. I lived this. I had a first I had a front row seat to this and I had no idea. Yeah. And most likely that what what caused that to happen was not just that people made individual choices, but realtors were showing these houses <laughs> to black people and, and t- showing other houses to white people so that there wasn't even, they weren't even encouraging any kind of integration. I mean, the, the real estate industry, you know, as you probably know, is, has a long history of racial, racial profiling and uh, flipping neighborhoods and using all of that for their own gain. So it's uh, and so that that whole structural piece is going on and you're just kids seeing the neighborhood change and not understanding why. And yeah, I can I can see that. Yeah. One, one of the things I wanted to say about my race story that I forgot to mention is that, you know, it's an on, it's an ongoing it's an ongoing issue. I, you know, I refer to myself in the book as a recovering racist. And what I mean by that is that, you know, white supremacy, white privilege is like is like a drug. I mean, you it, it provides a kind of comfort and a kind of shield, a buffer against the world that can be very intoxicating. And I find that in order to stay alert to the, the impact of racism upon my life, it, it has to be an ongoing, an ongoing effort. And I've, for a brief period in my career, when I was a pastor, I was doing, um, I worked in a drug and alcohol rehab center and worked with a lot of people who were working on the 12 steps. And one of the one of the really brilliant things about the 12 step movement is that when a person goes through the 12 steps, they never say I've recovered. They never say I'm cured of my addiction. They always say I'm in recovery and that I'm recovering. And I, I find that to be a helpful metaphor for understanding how we continually need to work on the racism that is impacting our lives 
And so I, I think of myself as always in recovery. And even though I've been working on this and studied this and written about this, I also know I do and say things that are, are racist. And I, I need to I need to take account of that. And uh, and and that's so that the story is not some it's, the story is not over. It's it's something we I continually grapple with and encourage yeah. others to do. That definitely makes sense. And I think that this goes well with the next question that I have. So one of the things that you talk about in the book is um, white liberals. Mm. So in a lot of progressive, a lot more progressive in liberal circles, in a lot of the mainstream media, it mm. tends to be that conservatives, um, especially white conservatives, tend to get a bad rap for racial bias and racist attitudes. Mm-hmm. But I was listening to the radio and originally heard about this, and then I had to go home and find it and read this. But I read a study by psychology researchers Cindy H. Dupree and Susan T. Fisk, and they found preliminary evidence that white liberals were more likely than white conservatives to do what they called competence downshift. Mm -hmm. So in other words, it meant white liberals were more likely to bring their language down to what they perceived to be the level of people of color when interacting with them. So white people, regardless of ideology, are often influenced by negative racial stereotypes of certain groups, groups of color. And I mean, I think actually probably, I think everyone really is, but yeah. So white people, regardless of ideology are influenced by negative racial stereotypes, but white liberals are more likely than white conservatives to care about being accepted by Mm. people of color and not being perceived as racist. Right. But then the issue is that with that approach, and it might not be a conscious approach, but it might not be something that people necessarily think about, but this approach often leaves people of color feeling patronized in Mm. their interactions with white liberals. And so sometimes you'll see these interactions fraught with tension. Now, I think this also dovetails with a section of your book where you talk about white liberals. In Disrupting Whiteness, there's a particular passage that I read that stands out, and I'll I'll just briefly read it. Quote, this disturbing expression of white liberal racism leads to the white savior mentality and people who feel it's their duty, even calling, to take the lead in an effort to help the poor, disenfranchised, and victims of injustice. Yet, instead of following the lead of others closer to the pain, they want to work on their own terms. While their motivations may be honorable, white saviors want to lead and direct the process rather than work in solidarity and consultation with those most affected by the injustice being addressed. End quote. Dr. Boyd, why do you think white liberals often have trouble with the idea that they may still have more work to do? And how can any hurdles on this front be addressed? Yeah, that's uh, that's an excellent question. And, you know, in the book, I refer to a quote by Philadelphia columnist Solomon Jones, who quotes older black folks who said they'd rather deal with white people from the South because at least they know where they stand. And I think when people feel patronized, they they feel like, OK, these people are here for a good reason. but why do I feel like I'm being demeaned? Why about, Why do I feel like I'm being talked down to? And I think that's that's a very real problem. And I think um, particularly, you know, there's a lot of controversy this day about people, white people being, quote, woke. And I think a lot of wokeism 
it, you know, a lot of white people kind of became aware of just how, how pervasive racism is in our society after the death of George Floyd and all the marches and whatnot that occurred after that and figured they had it all figured out without really coming to terms with the fact that they had benefited by that white supremacy, that they they still perpetuated certain attitudes. And and so I think to your question, what why do they have trouble is that contending with the fact that racism is a part of your life is a very painful and very uncomfortable thing to admit. We don't like to admit, uh, none of us like to admit that uh, we haven't got our stuff together. And particularly in this age when people are really talking about dismantling racism and changing structures and changing systems, to have to at the same time to contend with the fact that you know, I have things in my life, I have things in my attitudes that that need to be addressed. It is a very difficult thing for people to, to face. And so they, they'd rather just ignore it. And one of the ways that white savers ignore it is they get involved in missionary work, so to speak, quote unquote, you know, that they're going to go save, save the poor, save, save the disenfranchised, save those who are suffering under racism. And they do it in a very patronizing way, as they say in the book. I mean, I did it. I remember my first job out of college was working in a neighborhood of Boston, Massachusetts, uh, which was about a third African-American, a third Irish Catholic, and a third Puerto Rican. And I thought I was there to just sort of, you know, save the people. And what I learned very quickly was that there were people there who who were much more, who, who lived in that neighborhood, who knew what needed to be done, and I needed to learn from them. Um, and so what I often say to young folks, white folks who want to go work, for racial justice is put yourself under the leadership uh, of people of color who are doing the work and who are closest to the pain and learn to listen and um, and learn to pay attention to what they see the issues are. Someone just recently this week actually sent me an article that talked about progressive, progressive gentrification, uh, white liberals coming into lower income neighborhood primary of color supposedly to do social justice work and to, to work to change things, but doing it in a way that doesn't doesn't connect with the people, not listening to people's stories, not not hearing where people saw the needs and kind of just assuming they understand what the issues are rather than really working alongside of people. I mean, I really think the way that we are going to work through the the racial polarities that exist in our society is that we have to work together and we have to really listen to one another. And as a white person, I have to really hear what the experience of being a racial other is and understand that it's not my experience and I don't know it and I have to learn it and I have to hear it and I have to respect it. And uh, and so, you know, it kind of gets back to that idea of being a recovering racist, that the, uh, the more work I do, uh, the more work I realize I need to do and make myself accountable to folks who are closest to the pain. Mm. It makes me think of something that I like to say in some of my episodes where I'll talk about allyship. Right. And, you know, I talk about it in various contexts, but allyship is something that you do, is something that you, it's like you're constantly working on it. You've never made it. Right. (laughs) And I think like, as soon as you feel like, oh, I've made it, I declare myself an ally, then you, you kind of lost the plot. 
Well, there's a, there's a, there's a well-known saying, and I'm not going to get it exactly right, but it, it's attributed to Lila Watson, who is, is a Aboriginal Australian woman who said, you know, if you've come here to rescue me, I don't need your help. But if you have come because your destiny is tied up with mine, then let's work together. And I think truly that's for me what allyship is, is that I understand that my well-being and the well-being of the world in which I live is tied to your well-being and the, the world in which you live and that we need to to work on this together. And uh, the, the word allyship, you know, has kind of fallen out of favor with folks and they want to talk about accomplices or co-conspirators. And I'm, I'm not I don't get hung up on language. But the idea is that we're in this together and that we, we need to be together in the work and not just assume that I understand something. and I'm just going to go ahead because that's the, what, I, what I think as a white person is what ought to be done. Because that's what we've done. That's what we as white people have done for the whole history of the United States and, and even beyond. And it's led us to where we are. That makes sense. So I'm going to sort of shift gears. And um, I wanted to very briefly discuss critical race theory. Mm-hmm. So critical race theory is an academic concept that focuses on the impact of race on the U.S. legal system, that's where it originally started, and then it spread to evaluating other institutions as well. And it looks into how um, race has impacted and how that has impacted racial realities, both historically and in contemporary life. Mm-hmm. So recently, there's been a lot of public discussion about critical race theory, particularly in religious, political, and educational circles. Right. And there has been some hostility to it especially among politically conservative as well as evangelical Christian thought leaders. Without saying the term critical race theory, in Disrupting Whiteness, you discuss ideas and concepts that are often highlighted by proponents of critical race theory. So some examples include your discussions of whiteness, anti-racism, privilege. What would you say to those who recoil at the idea of exploring whiteness? or doing the work of becoming anti-racist due to negative perceptions of critical race theory? Huh. Uh, you know, the, the entire framework for the book is based on critical whiteness studies, which is, a, as you know, a subspecialty of critical race theory that really looks at the white perspective and what, what, what's the white responsibility in this whole struggle. And I, I don't ever mention the term critical race theory in the book, because I wanted to write it for a non-academic audience, and I didn't want people to get hung up on certain things that might otherwise uh, just deter them. And actually, I uh, about a month ago, I gave a series of talks to actually a Christian institution. I was invited to, by someone who knew me, and he he asked me to come and talk about critical race theory and asked me to give three talks. And I gave three talks, and the first two. Uh, I talked about racism and, and uh, race as a construct, and I talked about whiteness and white privilege. Never mentioned critical race theory until the third presentation. I said, you know, I've been talking about critical race theory for the last two, two sessions. Now, let me tell you what I was doing, because I think what's happened with this whole controversy around the critical race theory and the 1619 project, it's been taken up by legislators across the country. It's just a smokescreen. Uh, for whites not in, not wanting to contend with the systemic and institutional racism racism that's been at the heart of our history as the United States since the very beginning. I mean, that's what the 1619 Project is all about. 
that it started in 1619. You know, it's, it's, it's been there from the beginning. I mean, our economy, our politics, our culture, our history are just infused with racist ideology. Uh, you know, some have called racism our original sin and as a country. And, and so, you know, if you don't want to talk about critical race theory, that's fine. But we have to, one of the keys, I think, key concepts in critical race theory is this notion that racism is an ordinary part of American life. It's not an exception, but it's, it's infused in so much. And, and this can be validated again and again and again by people of color as they share their experiences. And so I guess I would say that anyone who doesn't want to really contend with the reality of white supremacy and institutional and systemic racism in our society and its effect on them and on and people in general who don't want to acknowledge their privilege and the privilege of others, then you're really not ready to do anti-racist work. Um, I mean, it's not just about how you and I treat each other as individuals. That's certainly part of it. And, you know, if we can get along, that's certainly better than not getting along. But it's but we're living in we live in an environment that is just infused with our laws and our policies and our practices as institutions that continually discriminate against people of color in, in significant ways. And, you know, through the, through the pandemic, we've seen these disparities in employment, in health care. Uh, I've been working for 10 years with a group that's looking at disparities in, in the, the funding of public education uh, based on race. So it's not something that... <laughs> that you can just ignore. Uh, it's very much a part of our culture. And unless we are willing to really grapple with that and begin to address those inequities, we're just not ready to do the work. I can definitely, that, that definitely makes a lot of sense. So let's talk a little bit about solutions or at least ways we can make progress racially as a country. And this is one of my favorite parts of the book. You discuss in Disrupting Whiteness an interracial and interfaith group in Philadelphia called NUCOR, mm -hmm. where people get together once a month to have meaningful conversations about race. So, yeah, I'll, I'll basically give you the floor. How does it work? <laughs> well, a little background on NUCOR. Um, it, it, its origin really starts uh, in 2008 when then presidential candidate Barack Obama came to Philadelphia and gave us speech in which he said we needed a new conversation on race. And uh, shortly thereafter, the mayor of Philadelphia, uh, Michael Nutter, approached a group of African-American clergy and Jewish rabbis and said, we need to have this conversation. Uh, Philadelphia is a city whose history is just run through with racial violence and racial polarity and still, still exists today. Mm -hmm. And so there was a group of uh, black and white Christian clergy and Jewish rabbis who began meeting on a monthly basis to try and grapple with, OK, what do we do with this charge that the mayor has given us? And, you know, they talked about, you know, maybe we can set up programs and maybe we can do some trainings and that sort of thing. But then they came to realize that in their own denominations, in their own churches and synagogues and judicatories, that they they still had racism running through uh, their institutions as well. And so they they started by, they, they stopped and they sort of said, you know, let's talk about our own stories. And so they began a pattern where each 
month when they would meet, someone would tell their race story, very much like we were talking about earlier. And and then the others in the group, the the approach was was to then listen to that story and then to ask questions designed to draw that story out more fully, not to, you know, sometimes we ask questions that are really statements about ourselves, or we ask questions that try to draw attention to ourselves. They said, no, we want to, we want to really delve into this person's story. And so they would ask questions to try and draw out that story more and more. And, and what they, what they experienced as they did this month to month to month was that in hearing each other's stories, they themselves, one, as, as people ask questions about story, you came to understand your own story more, but also in hearing others, it shed light on people's own story. And so that began a pra- practice that we've continued uh, to this day. Now, I, do, I wasn't there at the very beginning, but I kind of came on. I've been a part of the group probably for 10 years. And we, we always start by with, with, a, with someone beginning to share a story, and, and then we probe that story. And and ask people to to share more. And it's really a, about increasing dialogue and understanding of each other's uh, journey. And in the book, I sort of take that idea and and re- reframe that as an approach to talking to white people about racism. So that, first of all, I say that we if we want to talk about race, we need to be willing to bring it up in predominantly white spaces because white people generally don't want to talk about racism if they can help it. Uh, and I've had many occasions where I brought it up and people have literally walked away. But to be willing to bring it up at the family dinner, to bring it up at the social hour, to bring it up at the Thanksgiving table, whatever. And I mean, but then as people respond, instead of getting into debate, which is often what happens, we we begin to take positions to instead ask the question, what's what's the story behind behind how you came to think that way or act that way or believe the way you do and to try and invite someone to tell their story and then to probe that story in a very much the same way to ask questions, to try and understand. And the goal, the first goal is to really understand the other person, but also then to invite them to, to reflect by telling their own story about what it is that they believe and why they believe it and to begin to enter into a dialogue. And I have found that this is a way it's it's a sort of disarming way because when when the topic of race comes up most white people feel like they're they're either going to get blasted or they're going to get in a fight and instead we're inviting us then into conversation and you know it's not something that's going to convert somebody or change somebody in in one conversation but it's an approach of really engaging people in ongoing dialogue that invites them to reflect on who they are and what they believe and why they believe that and as time goes on, you know, I would, as the person who's asking the questions, I get a chance to share my story and how I changed. And so we we enter into this conversation that's really based on our experience rather than just our positions. Mm-hmm. I'm just kind of curious, uh, have you or people who are involved with this group, like, have they been approached at all about this concept being spread to other cities? Uh, yeah, we actually have been asked on several occasions to work with other groups. Just recently, we were uh, working with the social work department, a local college that that the faculty and staff had gone through all sorts of anti-racism training that had been sort of pushed upon them and it, it had sort of a negative effect. <laughs> and so 
they asked it to come in and, and to sort of help people find a way to just talk about their experiences. And so we, we've done a training, a couple of trainings with the faculty, and we're going to go back in, uh, in the fall and we're going to work with them and talk about how, how, you, how you can do this with your students. Uh, we've done it. We've just shown up, said we're going to be at such and such a coffee shop and people who want to talk about the issues that are going on can come and we sort of model that around Martin Luther King Day. We always have some sort of program somewhere in the city where we're inviting people to engage in conversations on race. And usually we um, tie that to, you know, a speech or something that Dr. King has has uh, said or written so that it's tied to the, the holiday. But more and more we've uh, we've been doing this and uh, actually have had people from other cities come and invited them to be a part of it and said, I'm going to take, try and take this back to my home. I, I don't know of any particular ones that have started, but I know there's been conversation. Okay. Yeah, I was just wondering about that because I could see how this could be really useful in a lot of other places. I live in Cincinnati currently, and mm -hmm. I've lived here for, um, it's going to be 20 years soon. And when I first moved here, it was like maybe a couple of years out of uh, the 2001 Cincinnati riots. Mm -hmm. And that was precipitated by the um, police shooting of a young black man in, in the Overt Orion neighborhood of, of Cincinnati. So and so that was a that was sort of a moment that was very um, there was a lot of tension from that. And so we were like a couple of decades out from that. Right. But, you know, there's always a kind of lasting damage from things like that. Oh, so sure. yeah. and you know, not just from the incident itself, but the overall issues that culminated in in that particular incident and in the unrest that happened afterwards. Mm -hmm. So I was just thinking about that, like, wow, I think that, you know, so, for example, like whether it be Cincinnati or I know that there's a number of other cities and different parts of the country that could benefit from something like that. Yeah, these kind of conversations, they're not you know, you ha they have to be very intentional. And that's one of the things we stress in New Corps is that because of just the nature of our society and its discomfort around these issues, you really have to be intentional in saying, OK, we're, we're going to have this conversation and we're going to do it in a way that doesn't just end up with us all being angry at each other and walking away frustrated, but really trying to understand one another, but not in a way that's, uh, you know, patronizing, but as a way as, that's hopefully authentic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, so kind of looking at the book, Disrupting Whiteness, what would you say is the main takeaway from the book? And kind of going along with that, how would you like to see readers respond based on what you've written in the book and like what are you seeking to impart in the book or just in general from some of the work that you do? Well, I think um, the first the first thing is that, uh, and this is thinking particularly of white people, but I think more generally, race, to, to talk about being racist or, or to say someone is racist or to say our society is racist is not an accusation. It's a diagnosis that, that we, we have a condition, call it white supremacy, call it racism, uh, that is crippling us as individuals, as institutions as a society and that unless we address this we will continue to go down a road a road that will 
make us more and more dysfunctional as a society. And I guess I would like people to take from this book um, commitment to have earnest conversations about racism with the white people in their social networks um, and to see that that effort to have conversation as a form of their allyship and their activism. I mean, it doesn't take the place of advocating for systemic change, for marching, for writing, uh, you know, calling for legal changes. But I think it's it's also a part of what it means to be an activist and an ally for racial justice. I think we can change laws and policies, and those are all important. But at the same time, we also have to change culture. And one of the ways that we change culture is to engage one another in our social networks. Um, it takes a longer time sometimes in changing the law, um, but uh, it's 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 really transforming the way we see ourselves in relationship to one another. And I guess that's what I'd I'd like people to take away is that is a commitment to do that. And hopefully the book gives at least some ideas as to how to approach that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's one thing that I really appreciated is the approach as far as disrupting or tearing down whiteness as sort of an entity or whatnot through understanding each other, through conversations with each other, through being able to to ask questions and be intentional in that way. And there's just this opportunity to like reflect and to really think about that and how we approach each other mm-hmm. as well to kind of help each other think this through and to, you know, really understand our own backgrounds and seeing like how even understanding things through our own stories and through each other's stories. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what would you say is next for you? Well, you know, it's sort of an ongoing project. Um, I, I have a regular blog, trickboy.org uh, backslash blog, where I, I address these issues. And actually, I've made a few presentations and there have been questions that people have raised that I decided to to blog about. So I've Recently, I've talked about some of the things we mentioned, the 1619 Project, the critical race theory controversy. You know, a lot of people have some ideas that white for, talking about white fragility is going easy on white people. And so I want to address that. I'm also really grappling, and I don't think I'm, I haven't written anything, but I'm really grappling with what happened on January 6th and what this means for our society and this sort of alternative reality that seems to have been created for many uh, white people in our society. And how do we address that? That is a that is a big concern of mine um, because I and it, uh, to be honest, it's something that I didn't foresee coming. I, I was really shocked by just how people are kind of living in a, in a totally different reality um, on these issues. Another thing I'm involved with is uh, I'm part of part of an effort in Philadelphia where I live to uh, make uh, Philadelphia a restorative city. We have what's called the Restorative City Initiative, and it's an African, African-American-led, Afrocentric effort to equip people in local neighborhoods with the basic skills of mediation and conflict resolution so that neighbors can address issues and conflicts that arise without necessarily calling the police. And so, and right now, or at, we, last summer, as in many cities, we had a number of people who were arrested during civic unrest in the aftermath of George Floyd's death. We're actually running restorative circles with people who were arrested last year, bringing them together uh, with business owners and community residents and talking about what had happened and where possible 
and necessary, making amends for some of the harm that was done. And to doing this all outside of the court system. And we've been given the ability to do this by our, our district attorney. Um, and I guess the other thing I'm doing is I'm, I'm doing my best to walk my talk with regard to the book. You know, I have white folks on my radar that I'm, I'm trying to have these kind of discussions with and in beyond. And, you know, I'm, I'm finding that it, it can be frustrating work. I mean, particularly because sometimes people are very afraid of these kind of conversations. But I'm, I guess I'm trying to live into the very thing that I've been asking other people to do as well. Okay. So it sounds like you have a lot on your plate and a lot that you <laughs> plan on doing. So, you know, that's always a good thing. So, <laughs> yeah. All right. So um, you mentioned you have a blog. Is that something that like people could check out or? Oh, yeah. Yeah. As I said, it's trickboy.org backslash blog. Uh, I have a website and the blog is part of that. And okay. uh, and right now, particularly, I'm, I'm really addressing many of the issues that have sort of been raised by by the book and um, trying to sort of address the kinds of things that I think are really important for us to to deal with. Uh, you know, this is an <laughs> this is an ongoing issue um, and it continues to uh, raise other concerns that, you know, I didn't anticipate when I when I wrote the book. So I'm I'm continuing to learn and grow, too. OK, yeah, that definitely makes sense. And so, yeah, I'll I'll post that link in the show notes as well as the link to the book. As I mentioned, Disrupting Whiteness is available for purchase on Amazon. I really enjoyed it. It's a great read. So listeners, definitely go there and purchase it. Thanks again, Dr. Boyd, for joining me. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much for listening to Pastor Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Prime, or on your favorite podcast app. Go to potstirrerpodcast.com slash download, and you'll see the links. If you subscribe, which is completely free, you'll be able to access new episodes as soon as they're released. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give it five stars and leave a review. And as you might know, I enjoy tweeting. So follow me on Twitter at potstirrercast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free.